This episode of Mass Holes is brought to you by Friendly City Books, Columbus, Mississippi's independent bookstore. Learn more at FriendlyCityBooks.com. And welcome to Mass Holes, the Friendly City Books podcast where we talk all things Sarah J. Mass. I am your host, Caroline, and with me today is Emily Oaks. Hi, Emily. Hey there. Good to be here. Glad to have you back. So today we are talking about Crescent City 2, House of Sky and Breath. Oh, yeah. This is the seventh yes. Sarah J. Mass book I've read, which, oh my gosh, we have come so far. She's a thickums. <laughs> and uh, yeah, now we're down to one more after this, which is number three in the Crescent City series, which comes out in January. It is House of Flame and Shadow. We're planning on doing a midnight premiere party and everything for it. So it's going to be really, really fun. Definitely some stuff to look forward to there. Before we talk about Crescent City 2, House of Sky and Breath, though. We have some like very serious mass hole business to take care of. Oops. <laughs> so we need to address the kitty in the room. <laughs> in this book, in House of Sky and Breath, Sarah J. Mass says cl- She does. We are so proud of her. I mean, it's way better than Bundle of Nerves. That's all <laughs> I have to say. I apologize for ever talking any crap on her name. Yes. We said Sarah J. Mass is afraid of the word cl- And she said, bet. (laughs) (laughs) And she really went all out for it in this book. She said, Bryce is a city girl and we're going (laughs) to say it. So this is our formal Mass Holes apology. Sarah J. Mass contains multitudes and we are sorry for doubting her. So sorry. (laughs) So. Oh, and then another thing that we'd never talked about in Crescent City 1, which I feel like I really failed on this, is the otters. Oh, yeah. So apologies to the otters as well. They are so stinking cute. Little courier otters that travel all around the city. Obsessed. Love them very much. That really just gives Utopia again to me, (laughs) actually, because like otters in that movie are a kind of a thing as well. So I was like, that's all I picture is the cartoon version of an otter. She talks (laughs) about them, but it is cute. Well, we have otters giving Zootopia, but I also think that House of Sky and Breath gives me a lot of other kind of wild off-the-wall references, Mm. so maybe we can get into that a little bit later, but this book is just, it's insane. It is so dense. (laughs) It is crazy. A million things are happening Mm -hmm. all at the same time. You don't know what's important. You don't know what isn't. I mean, Dare I say, the plot in this book is all over the place. It really is. I don't remember it feeling that way the first time I read it. But this second time, I guess because I was trying to read it like a textbook, trying to figure it all out. But it felt like I'm here, I'm there, I'm everywhere. Yeah. When I was talking to Randy about this book, she recommended that I look at it like a bridge between not only the first book and what's happening in the next books, but also between this initial world that we learned about and the greater universe that we're going to be exploring in the future. And so I think that's helpful, but it's still very frustrating as a reader to be like, wait, I'm everywhere and I'm having trouble really kind of like figuring out what to prioritize. Yeah, I think it's like a 1000 piece puzzle when maybe a 500 piece is easier to digest. (laughs) Yeah. So like in the first book, 
there was this very consistent through line of we're going to figure out who murdered Danica and we're going to explore this world and meet all these new characters through the lens of investigating this murder. Right. And this book really doesn't have that. There is the initial, we have to find this boy. Emil, yeah. And we're trying to kind of like get to him before everyone else. But that really turns out to be completely unimportant in the end. It is resolved rather quickly, I thought, too. Yeah. <laughs> and in a storyline where Bryce isn't even seen on camera, like... Bryce has an entire storyline that we as the audience do not see. Yes, you're right. I didn't even think about that, but that is kind of bonkers to me. We don't even get flashbacks, nothing. We never see this part where Bryce actually finds a meal. We just get told that it happened. Yeah, and I feel like that's a rule they tell you in writing to not do, like Mm -hmm. show, don't tell. But at this point, I don't think I could have taken it. (laughs) <laughs> like I would have been like okay <laughs> like, yeah it was just so wild to be like wait what because here I thought that that was the through line that was supposed to be the thing that was going to carry me to the end of this book and then it was just kind of like now nah, actually we we already took care of that yeah um, I feel like she does that with some of her other protagonists where like something will happen where the protagonist gets a one up on everyone else and you'll feel like proud in that moment it happens a lot with the throne of glass girly mm-hmm. but in this one it's like i didn't feel that satisfaction that she was smarter than everyone mm-hmm. like i just was kind of confused if anything i feel like hunt in that moment was also very like kind of confused and what the heck watching it through his lens i don't think was the right choice yeah cuz i also felt that and i was like what cuz at first he was like is she just like shahar Well, also, like, when did she have time to do this that she was able to sneak away from not only Hunt, but us? Yeah, I don't know. I thought they were boinking the whole book. So (laughs) I don't know what she was up to on the sidelines. Well, we do get a lot of new characters and exploration into new parts of the world, sometimes at the expense of some of the characters and development that she had started in book one. Yeah, definitely. I feel a little bit bait and switched over the rune hypoxia of it all. I know that was kind of evil Um, because I know a lot of girlies ship them pretty hard from book one. But yeah, I mean, I'm happy with where they've ended up. Yeah. But I just I am of the mind of like, don't tell me that I can have that and Mm -hmm. then not give it to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm on the fence, too, with how it worked out, because I feel like she employs these tropes, but then at the same time doesn't. Mm -hmm. So the whole like rune ending up with like Hypaxia's sister isn't really addressed. Yeah. That's her sister. I also feel like there's a bit of a revisionist element to it too, where Mm. it was like, oh, Hypaxia never once gave rune the time of day is like repeated multiple times through the book. And I'm like, are you sure about that? And yeah, she did really spend maybe more time bonding with Hunt in the first book and like freeing him and having those conversations. But like, She and Rune had full-on conversations and, like, were building kind of, if not a bond, a friendship. And I would say she was definitely flirting with him before we knew she was Hypaxia. Yeah. Like, when she was just the Med Witch, she Mm -hmm. was straight up flirting with Rune. Yeah. So to say that, like, she never even thought about him is kind of a little much. I mean, I can't be mad because it just means more queer representation. This is true. But, you know. It's also not good enough. Yeah. I want more. I want more. And I want, like, queer from the get. Queer from the jump. I mean, I'm happy with this. Don't get me wrong. Sure. It's like, I'll take what I can get. Right. I'm looking for crumbs here. But, like, (laughs) I would like slightly larger breadcrumbs, maybe. Croutons. I want a whole book, though. So (laughs) that's just me. (laughs) So I think that for this book, because the plot is so chaotic, because there are so many different intermingling storylines, instead of going like 
plot point by plot point, it makes a lot more sense to go character by character. Yes. And talk about these new people that we've met and where we think this is really kind of going. Yeah. We're going full Swifty. Full <laughs> Swifty. Because at this point now with her earlier series or like Akatar, you could maybe argue that not everything should be Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. But for this book, she knew what she was about to do. And so I think every single detail is important. I also think that's why this book feels so dense because she's trying to fit so much foreshadowing in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it is it is just chock full of everything. You could read this yeah. book 12 times and still be catching on to new stuff. So I think a good way to preface these characters is to explain that this book is basically a three-sided civil war. So we have the Asteri, who are the godlike rulers of Midgard that we met in book one. Mm -hmm. We have the Veneer rebels who want to overthrow them. And this encompasses kind of our main characters. And then we have the humans who want to eradicate all of the Asteri and the Veneer. Yes. So there's kind of this caught in the middle element that a lot of our characters find themselves in in this book, mm-hmm. which complicates things. And there are people who kind of flirt with multiple sides of this. Mm-hmm. So the very first character that we meet is Sophie Renast. This is somebody who is completely new. We get dropped into this prologue that's just Sophie on the run. And it's this, I really enjoyed the prologue, but Sophie is a rebel who has infiltrated this death camp to find her brother, Emil. She is a Thunderbird, which is a type of veneer that has thought to have been killed off centuries ago. Yeah. But she really kind of can pass as a human. So she's able to kind of infiltrate and be a spy within these networks. It's said that her magic is different. So it doesn't like register on their like radar. Mm hmm. And her brother is captured by the Asteri's forces yeah. and she wants to get him out. And the way that she is able to convince the rebels into helping her get her brother out is by saying that he is just as powerful, if not more powerful right. than her. Mm-hmm. So they think that he is this huge asset and they're like, all right, let's go get him. So she she finds her brother. She breaks him out of the camp with the help of this character, Agent Silverbow. Yes. Who we find out a little more about later. But they are ambushed by the Hind, who we do hear a good amount about kind of as a boogeyman in the first book. Very much. They are an evil henchman of the Asteri. And Sophie is killed by the Hind in this interaction. But her brother, Emil, escapes. Yes. Obviously, this is the end of Sophie. So she's a very short-lived character. She basically just gets the prologue. But her story connects many other characters throughout the book and Mm -hmm. creates kind of this, like, interweaving kind of ethos for a lot of different people. Yeah, she like becomes another Danica. Yeah, (laughs) essentially, yeah. Also in this exchange is Pippa Spetsos, who is a human rebel, and she is just an absolute extremist. She wants to completely expunge veneer from the world. Which I think, um, just an aside, I think that's a weird goal to have after 15,000 years of them being around. (laughs) Um, Because like, at this point, all the half-breeds and stuff, but... I was made from the beginning to find her annoying just because I don't like the name Pippa, but (laughs) (laughs) I really hate her. Yeah, I think Peppa, uh, Peppa, Peppa Pig. Uh, (laughs) I think Pippa really encompasses that like ethnic cleansing concept that we get in this book throughout Mm -hmm. because obviously the Asteri are bad. We know the Asteri are bad, but Pippa is also bad on the other side. So, you know, a little nuance here, which is nice. Yeah. 
The Hind, however, is somebody that I'm very excited to talk about because I really liked her. This is Lydia Servos, a.k.a. The Hind. Mm -hmm. Um, She could be my main character. Really? I love Lydia. Like, she is awesome. I think she's very Nesticoded, though. She is Nesticoded, and the only thing that stops her from being my Nesta variant in this book, because I care so much about those, is that as Agent Daybright, she's too nice. (laughs) Um, Nessa would never be that nice. Yeah. So she is a deer shifter. Yes. And she is actually Hypaxia's half-sister. Yes. So Hypaxia's mother, the witch, also had this romantic entanglement with a stag shifter, which resulted in Lydia. But Lydia had no witch powers. And so the witches basically sent her to live with her father, to grow up there, and to be raised by the shifter community. And as a result, she and Hypaxia have never met. Mm -hmm. And so there's not really like a sisterly bond there in any way, shape or form. It's just that kind of familial complication. Yeah. I think that's interesting that they sent her off as well, because with her dad being a shifter, that means she's completely house of earth and blood. Mm -hmm. Whereas Hypaxia is half house of flame and shadow. Mm -hmm. And the witches seem to have a huge problem with that. So I don't know why they aren't just like... Let's go with Lydia. Yeah. Yeah. That was so interesting to me. I I enjoyed that we got a little bit more about Hypaxia in this book where she was basically taught and raised by these kind of ghosts. Right. Like she has this dark education, essentially. And if I'm not wrong, the ghosts she was raised by were humans from before the crossing. Oh. If I'm not wrong. And I thought that was like an interesting detail Mm -hmm. that they would raise her as a witch with humans. Right. But then also just another aside is that, um, you know, Parthos, the library that Jessica had in the first book is said to be from before the crossing, but it's got the book of breathings in it. Yeah. And I was like, you're telling me humans had something to do with that. (laughs) I thought they didn't have any magic, but that's just me. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of, there is little to no Jessica in this entire book. And that was heartbreaking. Very offensive to me as a Jessica stan. Give me Jessica. Mm-hmm. This is unacceptable. I also feel like I want her around in the same way I'm cool with Amran not dying. Mm-hmm. I want Jessica around just because she knows everything. Yeah, Jessica is a great resource for information. But also, I think that in this world where everyone's just throwing themselves at Bryce, I think Jessica is a nice check and balance to that. That's true. I roll my eyes every time Bryce gets a new love interest. <laughs> it's too much. Your eyes are rolling out of your head in this book. Good <laughs> Lord. So the Hind, a.k.a. Lydia, is an arch henchman of the Asteri. She is notorious for torturing and killing people. Mm -hmm. She and Hunt have a very complicated backstory where I believe she played a significant role in torturing him and his wings being cut off way back in the day when he was a rebel. I also think it's worth mentioning that Lydia is said to be so powerful, but I don't know what about a deer shifter would imply that. Thank you. Um... As well as, I think, the only member of Sandriel's Triari that's not an angel. Mm-hmm. And I just, yeah. like, what can she do? Yeah, we really don't see, like, her full potential in this book. I would like to see more. I think it's all smoke and mirrors, hmm. if I had to guess. Well, she does have fire as, like, a thing for her mm-hmm. in the same way that Rune has stars and, like, darkness and shadow. So I'm wondering if she has fire powers that we don't know about. I would love to see it. Yeah. But I also think that Lydia's character is not unlike what Hunt did for Micah. Like, as the henchman lackey who would just go do Micah's bidding, yeah. it feels like Lydia is just that for the Asteri. Yeah. Where, like, she might not actually be a true believer here, but she is exacting this because that is her way of survival. 
I do have a problem with the characters in this book not being able to see beyond their own noses. Because mm-hmm. I feel like it was such a theme in the first book that like Hunt as the Umbra Mortis and like eventually Bryce as the Autumn King's daughter, as well as like what happened at the end of the book, where they're perceived by everyone as being like this badass type stuff or even with Hunt being like deadly and scary, mm-hmm. but he's not. And then they have so much trouble believing those kind of traits in anyone else. Right. They can't see past it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's rough. So Lydia is also affiliated with Pollux, who that's like her perceived love interest, who is another one of the Asteri's henchmen. But one of the really big twists of this book is that she is also a veneer rebel. Yes. And that she is Agent Day. And she and Rune have this communication through a mental plane that they have created with the help of a crystal. A dalian. And, you know, they're information sharing, but they're also bonding and forming this really intimate closeness where they care about each other. They really, really care. But throughout this entire time that they're on their mental plane, Rune is obfuscated as stars and night and Lydia's appearance is covered by fire and so they don't know who each other is Rune eventually kind of reveals himself to her but she does not reciprocate they get freaky on this mental plane at one point (laughs) and he is like hooking up with her but she's still on fire yeah And then there is a masked ball where he says, meet me at the masked ball. Mm -hmm. And they run into each other, but he doesn't know. And like, oh, my gosh, it's very fun. Yeah, SJM got really creative with the smut in this book. (laughs) But I was really sad for Lydia because when he does eventually find out that Asian day is Lydia, he just absolutely is like, no. Again, we never see Lydia do anything bad. (laughs) We only hear rumors the whole time, like no one firsthand. Maybe Hunt did in his previous life with Sandriel, but Rune really has no place to stand with his hot take at the end when he finds out that he's like, oh my God. And I'm like, bruh. Yeah, I I feel like there's just the inability to see complexity in other characters. Which, you know, we'll, we'll get to that. But <laughs> So another character that we meet is Cormac. Yes. So Cormac is the prince of the Avalon Fae. He is yet another shadow daddy. Get in line. Good <laughs> Lord. He is also aggressively Scottish in the audiobook. Yeah. Like the brogue is unhinged. Wow. I think I pictured him with a really posh English accent. And then like everyone else has American accents. Oh, yeah. There are some very random British accents. And I think Hypaxia is British in the audiobook. Well, that simply doesn't make sense. <laughs> I, I don't know what I would picture her as, but it wasn't that. I think I still gave her probably American. Yeah, it's it's very random. But Cormac is certifiably Scottish, uh, according to the audiobook. Okay. He and Rune have a big backstory. They battled in an ordeal for the Star Sword and Rune defeated him. Very contentious. They do not like each other. Yeah. He shows up at Rune's house during a party in this like whirl of shadows. And he's Mm -hmm. like, surprise, Bryce, I'm your new husband. (laughs) And it's very the whole thing is very misogynistic. It is wild. He basically is like, your dad said that I'm going to marry you. So sit down, shut up and have my babies. Yeah. Now, 
problematic take on my end, <laughs> but I've never been that huge a fan of Hunt. I liked him better on the second read, but still not that big. Yeah. So when Cormac came along, I was kind of like, hey, <laughs> like this could be fun and jazzy. Like he could be playing a Reese or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, he definitely gets better. Yes. But at the same time, I think the way he came in so hot, I was just like, it was Tamlin in book three at the meeting of the High Fae for me when he's like, does she make that little moan? Like, that was the level of Cormac in this first introduction. And so I just couldn't bring myself to ever care about him. And he's blonde, which is an ick. But it is what it is. Yeah, I just, sorry, Cormac. Sorry to this man. (laughs) I could not care less. Um, but we do eventually find out that Cormac is Agent Silverbow and that he was working with the Rebels and that he was also in love with Sophie. Yeah. So he has a really vested interest in finding out what happened to Sophie and finding a meal. Bryce makes a deal with Cormac eventually after he kind of reveals himself to be slightly less. I think it was really the moment when... Cormac was revealed as a rebel mm-hmm. that Bryce was like, oh, there actually is a lot more to this guy. Yeah. And he has a vested interest in finding Emil. And in order to do that, they have to pretend that their betrothal is real. I think Bryce has a lot of knee jerk reactions that I'm not a fan of. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, she has her moments where she thinks it through, like when she had that whole thing with Emil work out off camera, off camera, off page. But there's so many instances in this book where she'll be doing some action or looking some way and another character will note how much she looks like the Autumn King. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, her hot-headedness is going to get her into some deep water, I feel like, because she doesn't she doesn't think things through. Yeah, there were so many references to her being like the Autumn King in this that I think, A, really mark her as the true heir. Yeah. But also, I think a lot of the things that she hates in her father are things that she sees in herself. Yeah. Oof. Oof. <laughs> it's like me and you both, girl. <laughs> um, anyway, so it, it really feels like the hunt for a meal is this really important thing. At least in the first like third of the book, it is all about finding yeah. a meal. We've got to find this kid before anybody else does. We've got to save him. Bryce is very invested in this. Hunt is really the only one that's like, nah, because he is not willing to be seen with rebels or associating with rebels. He's like, yeah. been there, done that. But what we do learn from this whole Cormac hunting for a meal and all that stuff like that, you know, obviously as a rebel, he is also working with Pippa, the extremist. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting elements of this book is that he kind of realizes that Pippa is as extreme as she truly is. And that, like, she wants to kill all veneer, mm-hmm. including him. So why is he helping her? Yeah. At this point, it was starting to become a talk of, like, the lesser evil mm-hmm. or whatever. And I'm like, are we calling genocide the lesser evil yeah it was a real rough kind of interplay of like who who is the good guy yeah and i i think i would have normally been annoyed by all of hunt's questioning of every action but like he had some good points yeah he's like we shouldn't be involved in this yeah let's just uh stay in crescent city yeah deal with our own little problems that we've got going on vibing yeah we have our own politics to work through yeah we've got you know we've got this autumn king we got to deal with because at one point hunt also becomes a prince of the fae because yeah the betrothal with cormac comes out as fake and bryce announces to everyone that hunt is her mate and therefore is also part of the fae that's one of the times i was cool with her orchestrating it without us seeing Mm -hmm. so i was like that was a cool move i liked it especially because she got one up into becoming a princess but 
Yeah. And and that whole I guess we should we should also talk about the fact that yes, <laughs> Hunt and Bryce are mates. We find this out pretty early on in the book. I think there's still doubt. I mean, I'd be fine if they weren't. I feel like I heard I didn't see it, but I heard about recently like SJM confirming that they're mates. Mm-hmm. But I still have doubt. Yeah, I think I saw that she made like a TikTok that was like, yes, they are mates or something like that. But I mean, he could die. My thing is, <laughs> you know, Rune is like, y'all sense mixed. That must mean y'all are mates like Faye are mates. And then I'm over here like, even after they declared they were mates with each other, they were both still questioning it. Mm-hmm. Like at some point, something's going on with Hunt and Bryce is like looking for him like they're in danger. She says... If he was dead, like, would a mate feel it? And I'm like, are you questioning that you're his mate? And then there's another part where he finds out she did what she did with a meal. And he's like, is this just another Shahar? Like, am I just with another, like, lying woman? Mm-hmm. You know? And I'm like, y'all aren't mates. Yeah, no. I mean... I like that unconditional love that mates have, and they don't have it. Yeah, or like this, like, inherent trust or, like... yes. That's it. Yeah. And like they're going to give each other the benefit of the doubt and they know that like they are always acting in each other's best interests. Yeah. And I guess for me, I don't see that on either side with them. Mm -hmm. So Cormac really kind of realizes that maybe he's somewhere in the middle. This is a really common thread in this book where our main characters don't really agree with either side, but they're trying to not necessarily find middle ground, but trying to find answers and finding the true path that's yeah. going to cause the least amount of damage yeah, they're to trying everyone. To their own team. Right. And I think Cormac is really realizing as the book goes on that like that is where he needs to be. Yes. And so this results in, in the big final battle that happens. Uh, Cormac ends up sacrificing himself for the the greater mission and for the team. But did he really die? Did he really die? Because, I mean, when you can teleport, I don't see how explosions can get you. Right. And then when you have fire powers, I don't see how explosions can get you. Yeah. So. And it felt really casual. Like, it yeah. was just like, oh, and then Cormac's death. Like, he, like, self-emulated it, or something. I, it just doesn't make sense to me. Right. And for for in the first book, to have characters who had such a tremendous send-off... For a character who seemed pretty important to be so just like casually thrown off the page. Like even Sophie just being a prologue girly got a bigger death than that. Yes. Like Sophie felt like a much more important character than Cormac. Like did Sarah J. Mass ever even care about Cormac? Or was he just there to add tension between yeah. the Hunt and Bryce of it all? I don't know. It's like I'm trying to figure out if there was something that had to have him present. I don't know. I don't think there was. I don't. Maybe we'll find out that like the Aval and Faye are important for connecting. And I think down they the road. sure are, you know, especially with all of like the lineage they're talking about. There's a he's the one that names the Autumn King in this book, mm-hmm. um, which I know in SJM's worlds, like names are a big deal. But I like aside from that, aside from just being able to talk more about the other aisle and like. Pangira and stuff. I don't see how he's that big a deal. Yeah. But who is a much bigger deal in this book is Therian. Therian. I like Therian a lot. Like, he is probably my favorite of the dudes who aren't princes of hell. Oopsie. I think he's a terrible person. (laughs) So here we are. That's perfectly fine. (laughs) Why do you think he is a terrible person? I mean, 
yeah, he's a flirt and he's fun on the page, but he also, his actions, crazy. Mm-hmm. Crazy, terrible. Yeah. He was going to take Ariadne down to the <laughs> bottom of the river and be like, have him being a slave girl. Welcome, dragon, to the bottom of the river. Yeah, like that's crazy to me. And then the whole time, I get that he's in a difficult situation, but I feel like we've seen other characters in similar situations where they aren't pulling all that stuff. Yeah. You know, like they're eventually their morals went out over their chains. Mm-hmm. Um, and his aren't quite the opposite. And the fact that he strings along. I know they're not great, but the fact that he strings along the River Queen's daughter for a decade. Yeah. Just because he wanted to boink her. Rude. Yeah. I, I definitely like I don't think he is like a good person. I am very entertained by him. I do like that he has nicknames for everyone. And he's got some good riz, if you will, what yeah. the kids are saying these days. Um, I highlighted a few of his lines, whatever. I just, I think that he is the kind of person that I like my protagonists flirting with throughout the book. Yeah. And I think his story is interesting because he is truly our only glimpse into this other portion of the world. That's true. Which is, you know, the House of Many Waters. He introduces us to the River Queen in this book. We meet her for real. We get to kind of see this world under the water. And we see that the River Queen is this very mercurial, difficult entity who doesn't value Therian for... He is not valued by this court in any way, shape, or form. And... You know, yes, he is engaged to the River Queen's daughter, but he does not love her and he needs a way out. He is sent by the River Queen to find Sophie, which I think the whole time I was like, what is the River Queen trying to do? She's very powerful and very mysterious. I kind of love her. (laughs) Oops. I think I feel the opposite of what everyone else feels about characters, but that's just my like my cross to bear, I guess. <laughs> but I like anytime, especially because she's just being a protective mom a lot when it comes to Therian. I'm like, yeah, eat him up, girl. <laughs> yeah. But so Therian does end up working with Bryce and Cormac, et cetera, et cetera, to try to find Emil and also to try to find answers about Sophie. But I think the really interesting thing that we get from Therian, and it's not even necessarily like Therian, but the fun element that we get in this book is that we meet the ocean Queens people and the ocean Queens people are awesome. It seems like where the river queen is very kind of like difficult and vindictive and restricting. Yeah. That the ocean queen really has this world that she has built where her, her people are happy and thriving and feel trusted and valued. Mm -hmm. And Basically, at one point, our our main characters are in a very precarious position, and the Ocean Queen's people save them in the submersible city ship, basically. And the city ship is super cool. Everyone on it is just so fascinating. I would love to see Therian go to the Ocean Queen and work with her people, but we know that's not going to happen, and I'm very frustrated by it because... In the end of this book, Therian goes to the River Queen's daughter and says, I don't love you. I'm not going to be with you. And then runs to the Viper Queen and sells himself to the Viper Queen for protection. I, while I don't like the individual choice for him, I'm excited that that means we'll learn more about the Viper Queen. Yeah. 
But yeah, I do think the ocean court is probably going to be the best thing for him because he's always battling between like wanting to be in the water versus wanting the like modern times that Crescent City offers. Mm -hmm. And it seems the ocean gets both because the ocean queen cares about her people like having everything that the surface does. Yeah, the ocean queen vibe gave me like space opera almost like it's like sci-fi but it's in the water we're on this kind of like spaceship that's this like thriving city when they mentioned that there was like basically a forest in or like a jungle in the middle of it Mm -hmm. you know like this big swath of green i pictured like a doctor who set Mm-hmm. for the city boat yeah i would love to see more of that if we do get a fourth book i think it would be very fun to have it very ocean queen focused yeah maybe i mean the river queen is interesting but she is like the ocean queen's little sister yeah and there's four rivers mm-hmm. and i'm like i know that there's probably multiple oceans but like compared to the ocean the river queen just seems like Small fry. Exactly. So I I hope we get to see more of them because that was a very, very fun little tangent in this book. Mm. I think the Viper Queen, too, though, gets a ton of airtime in this book. She always does. And again, I'm just not sure what she's got going on. Mm -hmm. But I feel like every time they talk about her being in her little jumpsuits with her nails done (laughs) and like all the men trailing after her because they're hooked on her venom. I'm like, what an icon. Yeah, I love her. And spoiler alert, I guess, whatever. But they find a meal is being kept by the Viper Queen or being kept safe by the Viper Queen. Then she also shows up when Therian sells himself to her for protection. Mm -hmm. And then she again shows up because there's a dragon that's brought into the mix, Ariadne. And the dragon basically bails on Rune and his bros Mm -hmm. and goes to the Viper Queen for protection. Yeah. So it's like we're getting set up so that the Viper Queen not only is a very important character in this story and connected to a lot of characters, but she also has a lot of very powerful people yeah. working for her and at her disposal. She, I guess she's kind of like on both sides, you know, because she is a good person for being like a refuge, but also like if you're going to come to her, she's going to put you into a fighting pit. And then also Juniper had that bit about her brother being with the Viper Queen mm-hmm. and Fury's like, I'm going to burn this place down one day for mm-hmm. Juniper. Um, so I was like, I guess she's not that good a person. But I think the Viper Queen gives me like Six of Crows, like where morals are very uh, relative, yeah. like Ketterdam, like City of Sin kind of thing. She kind of gives anti-hero to me too. Yeah. yeah. Like I don't necessarily, and that's the thing, one of the things I do like about this book, though it is very confusing, is that there isn't just like good guy, bad guy. Yeah. And it makes it more interesting when people have variables and layers to them. And like, yes, it's kind of exhausting that we're constantly figuring out that every single one of the bad guys is actually a good guy, but somebody's got to be a bad guy. I think I know Akatar had the same trope, but after that's revealed, it's very much like everyone in the night court is like undeniably a good person. Right. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Interesting to me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like I would like Amran better if Amran was still kind of an antihero and like, yeah, there's still that variable of like, well, she's still drinking blood. Where is she getting the blood from? You know, instead it's like people are like serving her blood and being like, thank you so much. We love you. Like, (laughs) or like her true nature isn't good or evil. mm -hmm. Like it's just going to be. Yeah. I like that too. Definitely. So I think Therian is a fun character, not necessarily because he is who we should date in real life. (laughs) but because he is kind of this 
not good, not evil kind of middleman that bridges a lot of interesting gaps in the story. I told Aislinn that he reminds me of Finnick from Hunger Games. That's a good comparison. The water, the redhead. Yeah. Sometimes you got to ask SJM the hard questions and be like, (laughs) is this plagiarism? (laughs) Um, Another new character that we meet is Celestina. She is Micah's new replacement who has been appointed by the Asteri to rule Valbara, which encompasses Crescent City. She seems nice enough? Question mark? Who knows? Question mark. Yeah. Bryce and Hunt lie to her pervasively throughout the entire book. Yes. And she is very clearly betrayed by Hunt. Like, she feels betrayed by him. And he did wrong for that. Yeah. And we also find out that she knows that they've been lying to them throughout the book because it's revealed in the end that, like, she was onto them the whole time. Yes. But then at the same time, she is also having this, like, secret romantic love affair with Hypaxia, which, amazing. (laughs) But... Hunt and Bryce find out about this secret love affair. And so there's also this added element of like, is she going to look at that as a bond or as a threat? Mm -hmm. And where do we really go from here? I I feel like we got introduced to Celestina, but just enough so that she can play a much bigger role in the future. Yes. Um, I will say that reveal of her and Hypaxia was something I appreciated being genuinely shocked by in mm-hmm. this book. I mean, on the whole, the book's not really predictable. Um, there's a ton of foreshadowing, but like I guess that also plays into why it's so dense. Mm-hmm. But with Celestina, there's foreshadowing, I think, for her being really good and for her being really bad. Yeah. Um, there's like a line when Bryce is essentially springing Hunt from the barracks after he was sentenced to that two-week punishment where... Bryce is like, thanks for letting me have him. And she was like, no problem. You're doing me a favor. And at first when I read that, I thought that was foreshadowing that Celestina knew they were going on like a little rebel mission. Mm -hmm. But then the reveal at the end where she's working with the hysteria, I was like, yeah, I also wonder what it means for like Hypaxia's morals. Mm -hmm. If Celestina is bad, I'm going to extend that to Hypaxia. Yeah. And Celestina also said that like love is a prison. Yes. To, uh, to hunt afterwards, she was like, it's not something that's going to like bring you joy. It's the thing that's going to be your chains, basically. Yeah. For Hunt, it was something that freed him, literally. Um, I guess it's trapped him again. But <laughs> <laughs> it's like Celestina was proven right. But still, there's, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about her. At first, I really liked her because I was like, oh, she's nice. She comes from a small town. Like, she's just vibing. Mm-hmm. But then it's like... Are any archangels good? Yeah, I don't know. So with Celestina comes this triari of baddies, basically, (laughs) who are being brought to the city because the Asteri have kind of assigned her them. They break up Sandriel's triari Mm -hmm. and Celestina kind of shares it with Ephraim. So Mm -hmm. Celestina gets Baxian and Pollux and then Ephraim gets the hind and the harpy. So Celestina is betrothed, as ordered by the Asteri, to... Ephraim. Ephraim, who is another archangel. Yes. Ephraim is the one that replaced Sandriel in Pangira. Mm -hmm. And Sandriel's triari have been divided up between the two of them. Yes. So it splits up these kind of bad guys into this variable that maybe... It just feels convenient. Just to be an agitator, I think. (laughs) But so... Having Pollux in the city causes a lot of issues for 
hunt because they have a really bad history. And also we add the variable of Baxian, who is an interesting kind of character. Yeah. He is a bloodhound. He's a hellhound. He's a hellhound. Okay. So he's not a true wolf. Yeah. Which, do we find out anything about him other than really that he has hound shifting capacities yeah, it's just he's not a wolf that's <laughs> definitive because like other wolves look at him and they're like dog you know yeah. but yeah he's just a hellhound and i guess that means he comes from hell i don't know i don't know but he's just vibing i think too yeah so whenever ephraim comes to crescent city to visit celestina he also brings the hind and the harpy yes with him which also, again, brings Lydia back into Crescent City as well. Yes. Which is important because it really brings the front lines of this war that's happening outside of the city into the city. Yeah. And it kind of forces us to all have to pay attention to these like big players that are on this grander scale, which I don't know if I love, but. I think it was something she had to do after talking about them so much in book one um, that we were like bound to meet them and interact with them eventually. Yeah. But I did think the whole storyline about Ephraim, I was a little like, I didn't need this. This is maybe one we could have deleted. Yeah. I mean, speaking of deleted or things we could have deleted, uh, Ethan <laughs> is my next character we we're going to talk about. No. So Ethan, we meet previously in the first book, obviously a little bit. He is Connor from the Pack of Devils, little brother. So turns out Ethan is also in love with Bryce. Who isn't? We are flirting dangerously into the waters of a reverse harem. Dangerously. <laughs> like, calm down. I don't know what's in her pheromones, but chill out. I'm hoping that it's literally explained. I, it has to be. Like, it is unacceptable how yeah. many men are thirsting for her. Because if in the end of all this, it's just that she was hot. I'm it's done. not enough. Lydia's hot. Uh Everyone's terrified. Literally, the only thing that people say about Lydia, other than that she's terrifying and tortures people, is how insanely gorgeous she yeah, is. Yeah, she's beautiful. So, who's thirsting after Lydia? Not Rune, which is rude. <laughs> Just... so... Alex knew what's up. <laughs> <laughs> so, basically, what happens to Ethan is Sabine excommunicates him from the wolves. He's left bloodied in Bryce's apartment. Mm-hmm. He stays with Bryce while he recovers, which is very awkward because Hunt and Bryce are trying not to have sex for some reason, but they're just having sex anyways. Yeah. The whole thing is very... That feels ages ago to me. Right? Not even the same book. Right? But he ends up bonding with Rune and his Fabros, And so he ends up going to live with them. And there's this whole element where Ethan frees a box of fire sprites and the dragon that we mentioned before. Yes. From the astronomer and takes them to Rune's house. And there's this very adorable kind of antics where the fire sprites are like messing with the Fae bros and then we obviously meet the dragon at this point as well. I get a pet peeve when SJM introduces women in this book and then does nothing with them. Yes. So the fact that she introduced three fire sprites, especially after what she did to Lahaba, mm-hmm. I wanted them to be like more of their own characters rather mm-hmm. than just mention that they're like flitting around, you know? Or like validate Lahaba in a way. Like, oh, we knew Lahaba's like story we knew who she was we knew her family like yeah they have that one-off about they'll let their queen know that lahaba like did whatever she like because she was a descendant of another queen but like how are they going to do that they're like imprisoned yeah 
So it's like, (laughs) my thing is, how are you going to have this whole system where there are second class citizens, like the lowers, and then treat them like that as characters? Mm -hmm. Like they didn't, they're not big enough to get to be characters. Yeah. I am hoping that it sets the stage for a future thing because there are so many things that I feel like she builds and then just drops off and builds and drops off. So I'm in my mind, I am just telling myself we're going to get more. It's just not. Nothing's unimportant. But at the same time, she does just leave things. Just give me a fire sprite holiday special. Like that's all (gasps) I want. That would be really great. But so, yeah, definitely Ethan's story is the one that I feel like could have just not been here. I like the principle of his storyline that he was starting out packless and then had a pack by the end. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I was also like, "Hmm." I think the real important thing for Ethan was to be the tie that kept Danica relevant in the story. That's true. Or just kept the wolves relevant, really. Yeah. I do not care about Sabine at all. I I could not care less about the wolves. And my thing is, we're aiming to take down the Asteri right now, right? Is that not going to crumple literally all the other systems we have in place? So why do we care so much about who's going to be Autumn Queen or who's going to be Prime of the Wolves Mm -hmm. when we have this much bigger bad going on? Yeah. I just feel like she could have let Ethan ride off into the sunset and just been okay finding his own little happily ever after. I will say I'm a shipper at heart. So I like that he's got... I call it a romantic storyline, whether or not other people interpret it as so. But I like that he has, like, essentially a mate now is what I'm just going to assume. I love when they have that moment where they're like, oh, what's that smell? Like, (laughs) that's my girl. Um, (laughs) I love those moments. Are you talking about the wolf? Yeah. Okay. So basically, the storyline with Ethan and the astronomer is that Bryce and... Ethan go to an astronomer looking for answers about some of the things that they've found. And the astronomer has mystics. Yes. That he is essentially like imprisoned and they walk through different realms on a different plane and are able to find the truths to things that other people can't see. And one of the mystics that he has imprisoned is a wolf. Mm -hmm. And not only is she a wolf, but Ethan senses that she is an alpha. And he is determined to get her free from this astronomer. Yeah. And this is also who he steals the fire sprites from and the dragon. And there's this whole like Ethan versus the astronomer thing. Yeah. That it is important, but on a greater scale of plot feels a little small potatoesy. But I'm holding out hope. A dragon at least came from this. Like I feel. Ariadne. I love her to death. Yeah. So I, I feel hopeful that this can turn into something larger, but it is difficult for me to view wolf politics as important when the greater issues are literally like the gods that rule our world. Yeah, it feels like there's so many side quests in this book distracting from the greater plot. Mm -hmm. But with the other side quest, I feel like by the end of the book, you can tell their connection to the big plot you Mm -hmm. know and i still can't see the one for wolves right and we've been talking about it for two books now yeah yeah um but the one interesting variable that we find out about this wolf who is an alpha who's being imprisoned is that the prime of the wolves tells ethan that there is another heir to the prime Mm -hmm. position other than sabine and that this wolf might be that one Mm -hmm. so it definitely is a huge setup Mm -hmm. but 
we just don't really know. Yeah, she's Where like Danica's go. cousin or something. Yeah. And oh, does she smell like... That's what I'm saying. Like a bloodhound never got near her. Like, <laughs> what are we talking about? Yeah. So Danica really is present in this book. And it turns out that Danica had a hell of a lot more secrets than we even found out that she had in book one. I am exhausted by Danica. <laughs> if Danica has one hater, I am it. And if she has none, I'm gone. <laughs> Like, I hate her so much. Yeah. Uh, so we find out that she had a mate and it is Baxi and the Hellhound. Yeah. Which I think is cute, but I guess we'll never see it. Yeah. It's uh, it's a little wild. Apparently, she tattooed him as well. Yeah. Because she's just really into tattooing she's her friends. She's possessive as hell. But that is Baxian's backstory of why he is now good. Yeah. Is because he's doing it for Danica. Mm-hmm. We also find out that Danica was a bloodhound, meaning she can smell what kind of a veneer people are and what their lineage is. Yeah, like their family ties. So I think the implication is that Danica was one of the only people who knew what Fury actually is. Or like where she came from. Yeah. Just anything about Fury, really. Right. And that the idea is that a bloodhound is a very dangerous kind of skill because it gives you so much information on people yeah and it's information that people don't necessarily want to have out there it makes me mad again in retrospect because that means she probably knew from the jump upon meeting bryce Mm -hmm. that she was the autumn king's daughter never saw fit to reveal her own lineage yes and we also meet Danica's dad, Mordock, who is extremely bad. He's the hind second. So I guess that lends itself to her being a bad person. But <laughs> I mean, I think it speaks more to Mordock's character that he true. would hook up with Sabine. Yes. Both ways, actually. Yikes. Yeah, it's really bad. I think, though, at the same time, like maybe they just deserve each other. That's true. It's like <laughs> if you're going to do it, like, At least be with somebody you're compatible with. Twin flames. Oof. Just in the most toxic possible way. Egregious. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, with Baxian, he like knew about Mordok as well, just because he was with Danica for two years before she died. But it's also revealed he knew like so much more. Yeah. So not only did Bryce not know who Danica's father was, even though she told Danica, hey, my dad's awful. Danica was never like, hey, same. And she had a mate that she never told Bryce about. Never. And when Bryce finds out, I'm like, Danica and Bryce were lesbians in love. Because when Bryce finds out that Danica had Baxian, she's like, did she ever tell you that she loved you? And then when Baxian's like, yeah, duh. She's like taken aback because Bryce is like, she never told that to anyone but me, she said. And I'm like, the rainbow's in the room with us. Like, come on. It's fine. I also just feel really bad for Bryce in this moment because it's like Danica was a party friend and Bryce thought she was a best friend. Yeah. And that's really tragic, I think, is just that that was so not reciprocated. I know. And I really like the trope that like female friendship can even like trump romantic relationships. So for this one to feel so shallow Mm -hmm. is heartbreaking to me. Yeah. It's weird because it's like on one hand in book one, they have this whole like you kept these things from me, but we're going to overcome this by like doing the drop together. They have this beautiful moment. Like 
it feels like they're okay again. Mm-hmm. And then you find out that there was so much more. Yeah. And I just, I have a hard time justifying it. And it makes me sad. I actually really enjoyed the scene in this book where Bryce hangs out with Hypaxia, however briefly. Because mm-hmm. it felt like Bryce was re-entering a female friendship, one of the only ones she has left. And it almost seemed like she didn't know how to do it. Yeah. Because like learning everything about Danica has like shaken her foundation so much. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It's really sad. I am very hopeful that Hypaxia and Bryce become close. Me too. I really want hypoxia to be who i want her to be and so far hypoxia is doing her and that's fine yeah. just just be friends with bryce that's I like all i that ask she doesn't get overly involved <laughs> she's like y'all are up to some shenanigans yeah so the other thing that we learned about danica she knew sophie yes and that she was investigating the origins of veneer in their world and she met sophie through rebel activities and they were kind of investigating this together and made some sort of really significant discovery. Mm-hmm. And this information was lost with Danica and Sophie when they both died. Yeah. But there are clues to being able to find this once again. You know, you said that her and Sophie were working together, but I, probably because I hate Danica, I viewed it much more as like yet another person using Sophie. Mm-hmm. Granted, she was using Sophie for something different than the rebels are. She's using Sophie for her humanity to like go unnoticed and do things that Danica can't mm-hmm. and ultimately put Sophie in more danger. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, that sucks. Once more, Danica, you suck. <laughs> well, we do get a visit. From my favorite prince of hell, Adis, he appears as a cat in Bryce's apartment and tells the whole crew that Bryce's light is the same as the last Starborn Queen's. This is Thea. And he believes that she also shares her other gifts and that the Star Sword belongs to her. We get this whole backstory, fey lore that says that the story that they know that the Autumn King has been pushing is all a lie. And that Princess Thea's general stole the star sword from her, forcibly wed her daughter, and rewrote history to claim the star sword and the throne of the Fae for the male heirs rather than the female heirs. Right. And that they had a daughter who was able to escape. Helena. Helena. And that is who Bryce's powers come from. Right. They say that Bryce has the same, like... They call it Thea's light Mm -hmm. when they see it on Bryce. But then the story goes like Peleus raped Helena for the Asteria, essentially. So that would be where Bryce comes from. But they also mentioned that they don't know what happened to Helena after that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, where's Helena? Yeah. I love when Sarah J. Mass gives us like lore. Yeah. Because it makes the world feel so sussed out and like. When you're having history in a fantasy world, it only makes that fantasy world feel even more real. Yeah. I love the God structure in Mm -hmm. this series more than her other ones, even like Sathona and Luna and stuff. Mm -hmm. But we do find out that this isn't actually Adis who's visiting her. It is one of the Asteri pretending to be Adis. So we don't even get an Adis encounter, a genuine Adis encounter in this book, which is criminal. In my mind. It is criminal. I really liked him. I would like to speak to the manager. (laughs) (laughs) No Jessica, no Adis. Why am I even reading this book? Hey, all your favorites. (laughs) 
<laughs> you get like two others though and i'm like i didn't even yeah so we do get more princes of hell which thank god <laughs> uh so we get apollyon who is another one of hell's princes yes and he appears to hunt and talks to bryce as well he's supposed to be like the biggest bad the star eater that killed one of the asteri yes good for him I love it. I love that that's his brand. Yeah. So he is telling Hunt and Bryce, like, you guys need to manifest and claim your full powers. You need to become the entities that you can be so that we can fight the Asteri together. That is not what he says. Oh, no? At first, I don't think. Oh. They come across that eventually. But at first, he's like, I want a worthy opponent. Oh. And that's why he wants Bryce to be at her full powers Mm -hmm. but they're so sassy and they're playing the long game yeah there is this whole continued messaging though that like hell is ready to mess up the asteri yeah and i think that one of my frustrations in this book is that hunt and bryce are constantly interrogating people instead of just having conversations information seeking yeah conversations and They go to someone like a prince of hell who knows a lot that they don't know. Yeah. And is like, tell me about X, Y, Z. And he's like, you don't need to be worried about X, Y, Z. You need to be focusing on this other big thing. And they say, shut up. I don't want to hear what you have to say. You tell me the answer to my question. And he's like, your question is irrelevant. This bigger thing is way more important. And they're like, I'm not interested in your narrative Mm -hmm. and then he's like okay well then here's the answer to your question and they're like i don't like that answer so i'm not gonna (laughs) listen to it hang up like (laughs) what yeah i think for a series that's gonna like mirror detective series and like mysteries picking bryce and hunt to be the people that figure (laughs) out the clues is crazy talk because they're They're straight up dumb. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to, A, what you were saying earlier, where they can't see past their own noses. Like, their narrative is the only thing that they can conceptualize. And if something doesn't fit in their narrative, they're just throwing it out the window. For real, it makes me mad that they're, like, fighting this worldwide war with the Asteri and then still so, so concerned about this individual city's politics. Yep. It is an inability to see the big picture versus... Like, it's the forest and the trees. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, clearly, the princes of hell are correct and always in the right. And we should just listen to them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's not a good way to preempt that. But <laughs> Well, I feel like hell, um, as much as we look for him everywhere, I feel like hell is Crescent City's version of Reese. Yeah. <laughs> where it's like, we just need to go with him. Stay yeah. with the High Lord. Like, hell's where it's at. Exactly. And there's a lot of great princes there for Bryce to meet. Seven of them. (laughs) Super fun. So anyways, I think that there's some real miscommunication issues here and just an unwillingness to listen. And it's very frustrating as a reader to have main characters being told information and then them just being like, we're going to ignore that and continue on our little path. And we're going to learn the hard way. They just really go back and forth between being like the only thing that's important is that all of our friends and our loves are safe. Right. And versus like the greater good of like, maybe slavery shouldn't be a thing anymore. And I'm like, how are you going to weigh those two? Yeah. So all of this comes to a head with 
you know, the quintessential big battle of yes. a Sarah J. Mass book. Basically, I don't even remember the catalyst of it. Oh, I remember. What, what is it? They found out what the code on Sophie's arm was. Oh, yeah. And then the timing of it worked out with a Pippa visit to the lab where the mech suits are made. Yes. So they realized that the secrets that Danica and Sophie had that died with them can be found where the Asteri live, which is like a crystal palace. Crystal palace on Pangira. Right. So they're like, we're just going to go steal the Declaration of Independence, basically. <laughs> so Hunt is going and Therian is going. Cormac is going. Rune's going. Bryce is going. To find out the truth. And they get there and Bryce kind of goes in alone. Bryce is going into the room that Sophie wrote down in her arm when she was dying while Hunt and Rune are keeping watch in the hallway. And then Rune dips to go find his agent day yes because something bad has happened to lydia and yes. we think that she is being held in the dungeons at the crystal palace he still does not know her yet though mm -hmm. and then therian and cormac are going to be like the distraction and they're going to the lab where mech suits are made where also pippa spetsos is supposed to be mm -hmm. and they're gonna like mess it all up it's very complicated yeah. It's a messy, messy situation. And then Declan and Flynn are like man in the chair. Yeah. So Bryce is going in this hallway, opens up one door and discovers essentially the Asari secret, which is that they are being fueled by first light. Yes. And something else we learn in this book is that when you die and go to the bone quarter, you're only there for a certain period of time. And then you are turned into second light and you are kind of fed back into the system and you become energy that fuels the city and I guess the Asteri also. Yes. So the Asteri are these incredibly powerful godlike entities because they are feeding off of the people like parasites. Yeah. There's some foreshadowing for that as well that I noticed where, you know, the Autumn King is so concerned with marrying Bryce to Cormac because there's like a weakening of the bloodlines going mm -hmm. on, like across everybody. Um, and they call it, in that little sentence, they call it siphoning. And then you find out at the end that the Asteri are taking, like, energy. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it's, like, diluting magic as well. It seems like in the world of Pangira, energy is very cyclical, right? Mm -hmm. Like, energy comes from these magical entities, but then it is fed back into the city. It lights the city. It's kind of this circular, we are one with the earth and the energy is all around us kind of thing. But instead of like that circular process, the power is just going straight to the Asteri and that's the ending. They're like billionaires hoarding wealth. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and Sorry, hot take. <laughs> is that hot? I think that's pretty chill. Depends on who you ask. Uh, yeah, so the Asteri are basically these parasites that are feeding off all of their energy and, and basically sucking this planet dry. And I think it's crazy that like six or seven of them need the whole place well i guess they are that powerful and it's just so much energy it's like are they powerful or do they just eat hearty you know <laughs> like i don't know what their powers are i the biggest thing i thought this whole time because a lot of times i could convince myself that they don't have any power and mm -hmm. that they're like 
essentially made themselves figureheads based on myth. But then I think about how they like from across oceans and countries and stuff, they removed Hunt's slave tattoo. Yeah. Like that's power. <laughs> and to be able to appear as Adis and go through all the wards and all that, like they are doing things that are subtle, but require a lot of power. Yeah. So basically big reveal, but then Bryce finds a second door that is labeled dusk. Yes. And she goes inside and there is a like circular table and all of these like, maps all over the wall of galaxies that have markers on these different planets mm-hmm. and it's like this is the name of the planet this is the day that we colonized it conquered yeah and then this is what happened and either like we sucked them dry yeah or we blew them up because they tasted bad yeah or they fought us off Yes. And she's going through all these different ones and she's like realizing in horror that like that is what they have done to this planet, that they have come here and they are essentially feeding on them until it runs dry. Mm -hmm. And then they're just going to leave them for dead. So one of the planets that she notices, though, is hell. Yes. And that hell fought them off. And then chased them across the galaxies. Iconic. No, for real. I immediately, the second I saw that, I was like, yes. <laughs> Again, it's like the hind where they're just shrouded in myth that like makes everyone think they're evil. And then it's like they do this like super altruistic thing. Like it just feels really satisfying. Yeah. And it also really ties back to the fact that like these princes of hell are trying to tell Bryce, like, you need to assume your power. You need to fight these people off. Like, come on and she's just not listening because her perception of hell is that they are just evil and my thing is it's like at this point everybody wants her to open a door with Mm -hmm. the horn in her back um hell so that they can come through and fight them and then the asteri so that they can go get more food essentially from the other worlds Mm -hmm. um that brought the original veneer to this world and she's just kind of like I don't think I'm going to do any of it. And I'm like, girl, like, come on. She's like, I'm never opening a door again. Okay. While she's in the room, though, one of the Asteri kind of like comes in over the intercom Mm -hmm. and is like, oh, hey, you see you find our secrets. (laughs) Boo, you fool. And does the whole villain monologue situation where he explains that the Asteri have been traveling through all of these galaxies searching for ideal planets to feed on. So they set up shop on Midgard and created this world and kind of lured these veneer from all of these different worlds in and led them into this false sense of security where they didn't remember the Asteri or they didn't know the Asteri. Yeah. And created the system where the Asteri rule and the system is built around feeding them and these veneer have no idea. Yeah, because the Asteri is really uh, militant with information. Mm-hmm. And so they talk about how many things are forgotten over the 15,000 years that they've been here that like the shifters were originally fae but mm-hmm. they don't remember that anymore and like that's what Danica was researching and like getting into so that's why she had like the project like Dust Truth which is obviously finding out the whole system the Asteri have and then Project Thur which Bryce asked Rigilus what that was and he was like that's the last time someone got as far as Danica did it didn't go well for them which I'm like that sounds like a lie but. yeah But I think that it's really interesting because like hell is the only variable 
that still remembers the Asteri and is outsmarting them or fighting against them that yeah. we know of. Well, it's like, I remember the dates were that the Asteri went for hell three years before they came to Midgard. Mm-hmm. And that I think it took a year before hell booted them out again mm-hmm. and then have been chasing them for 15,000 years now. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. But the whole thing is very wild. It takes such a sharp right turn of just what? Like those last 50 pages, they're going to get you. It's giving alien seating. (laughs) And it is also like tender is the flesh level. Like we're breeding people to consume them. Yes. And like everything they're doing is like for the purposes of feeding themselves. And it's so creepy Mm. and very just like the whole thing is very insidious in a way that like, honestly, I respect the game. Like these are <laughs> real big bads here. And I, I'm happy. You know, I remember I was talking about in the last episode I did about Nessa's book. Yeah. Talking about how she didn't have a big enough bad. And like, where do we go from here with Akatar? And I'm like, Stary's a big enough bad. Yeah. Like aliens who will farm you for food is yeah. is awful. And that is the kind of bad we're looking for here. Especially when they were like revealing in their notes and they were like the children were ideal nutrition like oopsie yeah it was so gross but like this is what we need for a bad guy especially if we're going to take multiple books to defeat them i know y'all can't see it but there's like a gleam in caroline's eye right now (laughs) she's so excited i'm like finally something genuinely like weird and messed up to like actually fight against yes but i also think on a certain level like there's so much awful stuff happening on midgard with like veneer versus humans and all it's just there's so much happening and i know that we're very insulated in crescent city because a lot of this stuff is happening outside of it but even then you have like the lesser creatures the veneer who have lost their status and like all of these issues that to transcend to be the big bad in a world that already has these really awful things Mm -hmm. i think you got to find aliens that eat humans for nutrition or something i don't know like you gotta have something that's truly worse than that that's true i think it's interesting too that they like the asteri didn't stop at eating people they were like we're gonna introduce slavery and second class citizens to this world to keep everybody in line Mm -hmm. like they said we're gonna be a really big bad and then we're gonna be even badder so yeah very dark stuff thanks sarah j mass (laughs) (laughs) she said (laughs) y'all asked for it but so Basically, now the gig is up. Bryce knows the whole story. She knows that, like, hell was not lying to her. Like, everything that she knows truly is not real. And now, finally, she can stop ignoring it when people tell her the truth. Mm-hmm. And also, while all of this is happening, there is, like, a giant battle happening outside where Therian just completely dips on Cormac. Again, I don't like him. <laughs> um... Even going into this, he had really selfish thoughts about needing to get back to the water at a certain time. I said, mm-hmm. couldn't we have taken a dunk before all this went down? Like, yeah. Why did we have to worry about the timer on that? And then, of course, when Cormac's like dying and like doing all of the fighting, Therian's like, yeah, I should. I'm a peace out. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. So this is the point where Cormac maybe does or doesn't die, depending on your what you want to believe. True. Rune and Hunt are still inside, but Rune has ditched Hunt because he's hunting for Lydia, a.k.a. Agent Day. Rune goes off. He's looking for Lydia. 
And then Hunt is like, I guess I'll just keep sitting tight and wait for Bryce to come out. And then Bryce goes over her time limit and Declan texts Hunt. And he's like, she's fine. She went into another room. And then we go to Bryce's perspective. And then by the time she comes out, Rune's caught, Hunt's caught because they note that it's weird there's no guards around mm-hmm. in the crystal fortress or whatever. Right. And then like, I think for Rune, Mordok appears. Yeah. And then Rune's caught, Hunt's caught, Bryce gets caught, thrown in a dungeon. Right. And this is the point where I think Rune finds out that Agent Day is Lydia. Yes, because the harpy is about to go to work on them and everyone's freaking out because they're like tied up with their Gorgian shackles. And then just as the harpy's about to cut Rune's throat, Lydia tackles her. Right. So Lydia does try to save them. She outs her very quiet position like she she was very secure in her position yes and she outs herself to try to save them firm she even like kills the harpy straight up yeah gruesome death um which i appreciate (laughs) good for her (laughs) yeah i was like ah lydia um but then she she still gets away with it though which i think is fun that she still wasn't revealed yeah in the end because she like frees them and then she's like someone's got to beat me up and bryce is like I volunteer as tribute um, and starts wailing on her. And then Pollux walks in, of course, and he's like, oh, my God, my lover. He keeps calling her that, and I hate it. And then I think Pollux gets them under control because he grabs Bryce. Yeah. Was there something about Rune and Lydia's scent intermingling? Yes. And he notes that, like, from their mind meld. Mm Mm-hmm. He knows that his sentence under there and he says something along the lines of like only he would notice because it's his scent and it's so faint. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, Mordok's around. Yeah. Where's he's a bloodhound. Yeah, he's going to find out. But again, he's her second. But at this point, he's going around Lydia. He's mm-hmm. reporting straight to the Asteri and right. not her. But I think that means that Lydia and Rune are mates. I mean, when people have such chemistry, I just assume that. It's only when I don't like them that I start questioning it. (laughs) But yeah. (laughs) I mean, I knew that from the first jump, though. He had one of those moments where she was like her scent. Yeah. He's like, she smells so good. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, well, that's mate stuff. Yeah. Well, we'll see. But yeah, anyways. So we get to a point where basically it's one of the Asteri versus Bryce, and he's going to throw her into a gate. Does anything happen before that that we have to address? Uh, They're in the throne room. Baxian is there, but Mm -hmm. he's still playing double agent. They don't know about him yet. And Mordok is there, and Pollux and Lydia are the guards, and then Rune, Hunt, and Bryce are still in shackles, but Bryce's are undone Mm -hmm. because Lydia, when she put them on everybody, did not fasten them. Because maybe Lydia's a girl's girl after all. I mean, Lydia knows what's up. She said, if someone's going to handle it, it's Bryce. You know, like (laughs) normally I'd be like, let's give it to the lightning powers or something. But Mm -hmm. no. And then I think Regellus is the one in the throne room. He's alone because the other Asteri went to the distraction that Cormac caused. Okay, yeah. um, Which is how Cormac dies or maybe didn't because like the other five show up at that lab. But then I think Regellus does another speech. 
Oh my God. He's a talky guy. Yeah. So Regulus is on his master plan. An interesting component too is that the Asteri really know everything that's going on. They are they are more omniscient than our narration is. They know that Cormac was always working with the rebels. They knew that they were coming that day. They know absolutely everything there is to know. Sometimes I wonder if it's a lot of spinning though. Yeah. Because it's like, yeah, we can say that we knew Cormac was a double agent the whole time. And Rigilis justifies them not doing anything about it by saying, like, wondering who he'd eventually go to to help him rebel. And, like, Mm -hmm. obviously that turned out to be Bryce and her harem. But, um, well, we know that he knew when he pretended to be Adis because he that's how everyone finds out that Cormac is a double agent is because. Regulus, as Adis says, well, Agent Silverbow is right behind you. Yeah. So, like, they've been knowing everything. That's true. And, like, Celestina has been, you know, reporting back. And so it's just incredible their amount of information receiving. But I think it speaks to just how cocky they are because they knew all of this stuff was going down and was, like, they were fine with it. Like, they were, like, cool, try it. See what happens. Yeah. Like they are truly so powerful or think they are so powerful that they are unfazed by this kind of stuff. And I think it's interesting. I just thought about this too, that he came to Bryce's apartment as Adis in cat form, which like would lend itself to him knowing that she's been visited by Adis before. Exactly. Maybe even the time she was like 13. And like how familiar he was with like how they communicate and like. The candor of their conversations and like that she wasn't going to defer to him. Like, yeah, they know they know everything. Yeah. And that's kind of that's crazy, but also good, big, bad energy. That's true, (laughs) I guess. So at this point, Regulus is still just riffing on monologues and says, now I'm going to use Luna's horn in Bryce's back to open a gate to one of the fairy worlds. So that we can basically exact revenge on them, open another feed supply. Like, we're just going to go take them out and feed on them entirely. Yeah, I think it's because the magic is getting diluted in this world that they need to go back to that original source to get, like, better food. Right. Yeah. Because, like, they're not trying to go to hell to go battle hell. They're just like, we're just on to the next food. Yeah. They say they're cut off from their brothers and sisters, like other Asteri. Oh, that's so creepy to think that there's this entire, like, parasitic alien race out there. Like, they're not the only six or seven. Like, it's a huge thing. This is, like, really skeevy. I love this. They have, have like, a farm of mystics underneath the palace. That's right. To, like, search out all this, like, stuff for the other Asteri. Mm -hmm. So he forces Bryce to open the gate. So he said he was going to do that. Yeah. And... At that point, he's like, say your goodbyes. And she turns to Hunt, and they have their little moment. <laughs> and then she turns to Rune, and they have their little moment where he's like, you need to be Autumn Queen, mm-hmm. um, which he's been saying for a little while now. But Rune has been mind-speaking to everybody. Right. And there's like a code word. The code word is queen. Bryce drops her loosened shackles mm-hmm. and then springs into action and hits the Asteri with a huge blast of starlight. Mm-hmm. And then Baxian reveals himself by taking out the other Triari members, like Pollux and Mordok. Yeah. And then Lydia just ends up unconscious, but we don't know how. But like it's assumed, I think, that her cover is still intact. Right. And then Bryce takes off because 
in the mind speaking and everything, Rune, Hunt, and Bryce agree that she needs to go to hell mm-hmm. so that she can like pass on the information and help them and then come back and free everybody. Right. Um, so she's racing for the gate. The Asteria is after her. Hunt hits her with a lightning bolt. Yeah. And then she starts teleporting towards the gate 10 feet at a time because the Asteria is throwing up wards. But she finally gets one up on the Asteria and she makes it through the gate to what she thinks is hell. Yes. So Bryce opens her eyes in this new world and she's like, wow, hell's like really nice. She's like, this is hella green. Oh, my God. It's so lush here. (laughs) And then a man with what was it like scaled armor and big black wings and hazel eyes and hazel eyes (laughs) is there and he's speaking a language to her and she does not speak this language yeah and he still thinks he's demonic though yeah she's like wow this is she uh, said he's got those big old demon wings (laughs) yeah so he takes her to his people his people because she's like i need to talk to apollyon i need to like i need the princes of hell like take me to the princes of hell and he's just like i don't speak your language i don't mm-hmm. know what you're saying and she's like i don't know what you're saying so he takes her to meet with his people so that maybe somebody can speak the language and it becomes very clear very quickly that this is the night court the night court so Azriel brings her to I guess it's the river house. The river house. And everyone's there. I think Amrin is the one that kind of knows before everyone else knows. Well, you've got the Star Sword present. Oh yeah, that's right. Which zings on Truth Teller. Mm-hmm. Amrin sees it and she says Gwydion, the name of their like legendary sword in their lore. And then Bryce is still struggling to speak the language, though she speaks in the other only other language she knows, which is Old Fae. Mm-hmm. And then Amran's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> she said, that has not been spoken here in 15,000 years. You're crazy for that one. Um, <laughs> but I speak it, so. <laughs> she's like, we're, we're talking now. And then Reese and Pharaoh walk in. Yeah. And uh, that's pretty much where it ends. That's pretty much where it ends. It's and wild. That iconic last line, like, my name is Reese and I eat it up every time. <laughs> I remember the first time I read it, I was reading that part at like two in the morning and I got to it and I probably called my best friend 10 times in a row trying to get her to pick up in the middle of the night so that I could scream. Um, I was like, oh my God, because I didn't have any spoilers or anything. I know you did. Uh, Briefly, I knew that Azriel was connected in some way, shape or form. When you told me that you thought he came to... Crescent City somehow I was so happy because I was like she still has no idea yeah no the publisher spoiled that for me that Azrael was connected yeah but like we'll, all the... we'll persevere it's fine yeah um I mean at this point we're chatting about it like... yeah I, that's I didn't actually ruin anything for me I didn't know that she went to the night court like this was I was truly blindsided by this as well yeah but my first thought was I cannot escape this damn night court stop (laughs) no because would you not say that part of the problem of the dense plot and all the side quests in this book is that it's too ambitious with all the places it's trying to go it is it honestly going back to the night court it was almost a relief because I was like this is something I'm so familiar with so that like it's easy i like it was like a breath of fresh air i have a firm handle on nothing in crescent city Uh uh-huh even from the world building in the first book where i get what the drop is yeah i don't understand ordeals yeah i get like 
colloquially what it means for like maybe culture yeah about having like an ordeal before you make your drop but it then the fact that bryce was going through one it seemed like it's not optional right and that it's something that like fate makes happen mm-hmm. so i st- i don't what is that i don't get it yeah i don't know it was nice to kind of get back to the roots i love it so much i felt at home i loved that you could tell which character was which character without them being named mm-hmm. that was perfect and beautiful and then her looking Reese in his face and going Rune. Oh my God. Amazing. I laughed so hard. Because <laughs> this whole time I've been like, Rune is just Reese. And I feel validated that even Sarah J. Mass is like, no, Rune is just Reese. Yeah. Especially because there's like some foreshadowing in this book where um, it's said that Rune's eyes are blue, right? And then Reese's eyes are called like violet. Mm-hmm. But there's a line where it said Rune's eyes go so blue, they're almost violet. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that boy is Reese. <laughs> No doubt about it. I think it's funny, though, that their haircuts are so different. Oh, and then, like, the lip piercing that he will not stop messing with. That is very different. I don't think I'd be able to clock that they look alike with just their faces. Yeah, I feel like it's more of the vibe, like the the shadows of it all and all that kind of thing. One thing I'm confused about is that, in the end, the Asteri tells Bryce why her star lights up randomly sometimes Mm -hmm. and he mentions it's because when she's around anybody starborn it's going to do that with like starborn lineage or I think he even says anybody who's got strong lineage from the old world right and then he also mentions that it will light up for like hunt and stuff because he's like somebody she trusts and he calls them knights and then she gets to the night court and I expect her to be full blaze Mm -hmm. nothing not a peep I don't know what that means. I don't either, but I'm, I'm going to say that this is a point where SJM did not Taylor Swift. <laughs> I think that was a mistake. That's funny. But yeah, so, I mean, it's a crazy complicated book, but that's it that's is. essentially what it is. There's so much that happened. I think you honestly have to read it twice just to like pick up everything you're supposed to pick up mm-hmm. because even I just read this over the last couple of weeks to do this episode and you mentioning stuff in this talk we're just now having i was like i completely forgot that happened. <laughs> like, but also just like trying to figure out what truly is important and yeah. what isn't to even talk about and remember is just it's a lot i have this motto and i do this for television shows too where it's like they're not going to waste the budget on things that aren't important so everything's important yeah and that's hard to do in an 800 page book but here we are who was telling me the other day? Was it you who was saying about the checkoff line or something like that? I don't think so. Somebody was like quoting checkoff to me. Hold Absolutely on. Absolutely not me. Hold on. <laughs> so Chekhov, the Russian playwright, wrote like, do not write a gun into your play if you aren't going to use it. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like so much of Sarah J. Mass is me being like, she's writing so much in here. What is she going to do with it? Yeah. I believe every line is foreshadowing. I hope every line is foreshadowing. Every line. Because there's so much stuff I want to see that hasn't happened yet. And yeah. I'm just like, I, I need it. But also I need some more Jessica and way more Adis. No, Jessica is so important. And like, I need Amron and Jessica to meet. I think they would love each other. I think so too. Amron would love Jessica's library. Yeah. They would just, they would have cocktails together and be best friends. Amber would be like the only one who could read all the books in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also like she is on that level of like, do what I say or I'll turn you into a newt. Yeah. <laughs> Amber will love that. That's true. So I know that you also love 
ships. So I do. And one thing about Sarah J. Mass is she's going to make sure everybody's booed up by the end. <laughs> so um, do you have any specific uh, Crescent City 2 ships? Well, I'll work up to the my favorite, but I love Ethan and his little wolf alpha mystic. Uh-huh. I know there's no romantic undertones yet, but they had one of those mate moments where he smelled her and he was like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. She smells really good. <laughs> and then I know this might be a hot take because we don't want that kind of dynamic playing out. But Theron and the Viper Queen always works for me, too. That'd be fun. Especially because I feel like he's kind of shady. Um, so he's like somebody that could love her in her shadiness. Yeah. I do view her as older than everyone, though. So I don't know how I feel about that. Age is just a number in Crescent City. That's true. That's true. Um, I always love Juniper and Fury. I think every time Fury talks about Juniper, it's going to be the best lines in the book. <laughs> um, it's just so quiet. Like, especially in Crescent City 1, when Fury's like, I couldn't stop talking to Juniper if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And then you like know that they're involved. Like, I got chills just saying that right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but my favorite ship, undeniably, because they're my Nesta Cassian variant. And I know people will argue with me that that's probably Rune and Lydia. But I think... Lydia's too nice as Agent Day to be a Nesta <laughs> is Ariadne and Flynn. Yeah. I just love a good chase. And I love like uh, nobody likes her but him. I know that's like it's supposed to be like he doesn't like anybody but her. But I like uh-huh. a nobody likes her but him. Oh, this just reminded me now that you brought up Flynn. Uh, Flynn has a very Southern accent in the audiobook. No, you're lying. Dead serious. From what? He like grew up in Crescent City, I thought. I have he is a full on like Bama boy level. This is what happens when you get too many men in your <laughs> book and they have to like make the audiobook. Like why? He's but like yeah. Ariadne, I'm coming for you. <laughs> that's awful. No, that's off no, because I think if I'd listened to it on audiobook, I'd be impacted <laughs> on how I felt about the characters based on their accents. Um no, I picture Flynn is very like I know I said Cormac's posh English, but like very much like New York City prep. Uh huh. But yeah, Ariadne like not giving him the time of day and him being so obsessed with her. I eat that up every time. <laughs> when I read that, I was so excited. And if they don't get like a big enough love story, I will write in the streets. That's hilarious. Yeah, no, I feel like a redneck being in love with a dragon feels right, though. Stop. Don't call him that. <laughs> I can't take it. I can't take it. Um, I also love Declan and his boo, though we didn't see much of them this book. Mm-hmm. But it's honestly so hard to keep track. I yeah, I remember all the ships, but little else. I'm really bummed about Baxian and Danica not being together because I was like, if one thing could have redeemed Danica for me, it was a ship. Yeah, but I mean, it feels like Baxian wants to be a better person because of Danica or her influence yeah. on him. So at least we have that. It's really just how she treated Bryce that I have a problem with. Yeah. And I can't tell how SJM views Danica, which I think is partly what's like getting me. Yeah, it's inconsistent because in the first book, she was a real like tragic hero. But we still love her. But in this book, it felt like it was maybe either an easy way to insert some sort of motivation that came off as her being really evasive and or if she really is that complicated it does play into the idea though that like um the whole greater good versus individual interesting that like really to get bryce involved you can't just tell her that like the world's at stake and that we could end (laughs) slavery like bryce needed the danica connection to really care right 
Um, so I, I get that it's useful there, but yeah. My super heart just wants to see love on all the pages. <laughs> That's it. Well, maybe we'll get a Jessica love story or something with yeah. her with like a demon or something in the I next book. I was about book. to say Jessica and the Viper Queen could work for me too. I would be down. That sounds nice. It, Let's do it that. It does. Doesn't it? Oh, so good. That's perfect. Okay. Well, yeah, that's something to look forward to. Jessica <laughs> and the Viper Queen. <laughs> you said make it happen. <laughs> so, well, thank you very much for talking with me today about Crescent City, House of Sky and Breath. Oh, yeah. I had a great time. Can't wait to talk about it even more next time. And then uh, it's all about flame and shadow after that. Hell yeah. It's going to be amazing. So, well, until next time, happy reading. Happy reading. This episode of Mass Holes was produced and hosted by Caroline Barbie and co-hosted by Emily Oaks. Music by Hartle Road. Massholes is part of the Friendly City Books podcasting network. Hey there, it's Caroline. Thanks for listening. Support Friendly City Books and other independent bookstores like us by shopping online at bookshop.org and libro.fm. Find us on social media at Friendly City Books. And don't forget to like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy reading!